I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Deborah Francis White, author of The Guilty Feminist, a book that Phoebe Waller-Bridge called hilarious, irreverent, eternally surprising, classy as hell, genius, and Emma Thompson declared essential reading for the planet. Deborah is a stand-up comedian and the host of the hit podcast, The Guilty Feminist, which has had 60 million downloads in three years. She also regularly appears on television here in the UK and has her own BBC Radio 4 series, Deborah Francis White Rolls the Dice, which won the Writers Guild Award for Best Radio Comedy. She's also an official ambassador for Amnesty International. Welcome to our shelf, Deborah. It's such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much, Lucy. As I'm sure many of our listeners will be aware, so your book, The Guilty Feminist, grew out of the astonishing success of your podcast. Um, And I say astonishing, but when you think about it, it's not really that surprising that it has been such a success because it's funny and hugely entertaining. But you've also never been afraid to grapple with the hard stuff. And I'm interested in knowing if this was always your plan. And how does it feel to be looking back on all that you've achieved since that very first episode? If this was always the plan, I mean, there's never a plan show business, is there? I mean, the things <laughs> that you think are going to take off and the best things you've ever done don't, or they just sort of, you know, people go, yeah. and uh, sometimes you think, well, let's have a go at this. And you're not going out. You'll go. I think you always find your success when you're not trying to be successful, when you've really got something to get off your chest and you have to say it and you're not worried about whether it's successful. You're making it because you need to make it. That's that, now, those things aren't always successful, but I think that is your, genuinely your best shot and in some cases your only shot of success. And is that what happened with the podcast then? You felt that you really needed to make it? Yeah, I, I mean, it was 2015 and Hillary Clinton was just about to be elected the President of the United States. That seemed like a big thing <laughs> and that was absolutely inevitable, especially when Donald Trump was caught on audio tape saying absolutely horrendous things about women that was just absolutely inevitable there was uh, all sorts of other things going on at that time bubbling up all of Bill Cosby's accusers got together uh, to go on the front cover of a magazine so we could see how many of them there were that still were not being listened to things like that were happening bubbling up and I remember the conversations I was having with girlfriends seemed so different. Like I'd meet someone for lunch and instead of talking about our own careers and our own love lives and ourselves, 
we were talking about the state of the world and how we felt about women. And I, re- I remember one particularly impassioned lunchtime, something had happened in the news. Two friends turned up and I was like, I can't believe this. And I barely said hello to them. And we, I just went into a rant and then, I, and then they kind of escalated it. And then I said, God, I've hardly asked you how you are. And they said, we don't care. This is what we want to talk about. <laughs> and I remember there were lots of, you know, it was an incredible time for feminism, you know, 2013, 2012, 2013, this extraordinary stand that Malala took, Chimamanda's We Should All Be Feminists, Bridget Christie uh, with a bic for her. And I remember talking to Bridget about it and I felt like Bridget said, you'll only ever find your audience if you say what you really feel. And I thought, well, that's right for you, Bridget. You're so sure. Bridget is so strident. She knows what she feels. She's so angry and so funny in her anger as she's a comedian that's the way she expresses her anger and I thought but what I really want to say is I'm a feminist but I'm not sure I'm doing it right and (laughs) am I entitled if I'm not doing all of these things am I entitled to ask for these things and so I thought oh my god I'm gonna say it anyway and maybe the feminists will kick me out of the club but of course everybody feels like that and of course since then Bridget's you know been on the show and she said to me yeah I mean of course I feel uncertain about things or unsure I'm doing it right like everybody does but that wasn't that wasn't the burning message she needed to get off her chest in 2013 that was the burning thing that I needed to get off my chest was I want to talk about this I want to put it on the table if these things don't matter let's laugh about them let's have let's exfoliate them and not carry them as guilt and shame and if they do matter if some of them do matter let's look at them let's work on them let's build muscle but burying them and lying about it and secreting away our hypocrisies and insecurities is only destined to make us less able, less active, less powerful, less entitled to speak Mm. and to act. Mm. I think the podcast has really opened up the conversation. I mean, in terms of the way that you have allowed women to really use that but, you know, and to say, like, I have these I really feel strongly about this, but I'm not so sure about that. And then how, and I think one of the really, one of the strengths of the podcast as, as I see it as well, is the way that you allow these debates and these sort of ideas to sort of ferment on the stage as it were, and to open them up into looking at different points of view and, and, and different ideas from different people. So you've always had that, has that always been a kind of key to it as well? Yes, I think that I think the op- the cold open, which if people haven't heard it, is I'm a feminist, but and we confess something like I'm a feminist, but sometimes I fantasize about being sexually dominated by famous fictitious misogynist Don Draper, um, <laughs> or I'm a feminist, but I truly believe the first Thursday after lockdown we will come out onto the streets and applaud the waxers. Um, I feel like those kind of confessions, you know, can lead to discussions about, mm. well, what's wrong with having an interior fantasy life about being dominated? Nothing. What, where would that come from? Uh, where, what are ways in which it is safe to explore that? And how can we reconcile it with our feminism? So we might have discussion about that. Is there anything wrong with wanting smooth skin? Uh, an analysis of where that, what the history of that might be, what patriarchal elements are there to that, whether, you know, how much it's a, you know, but those things are sort of, I mean, they don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. I think I think as long as you question and analyse and discuss and then come to your own conclusion about it, what matters more is the, the ways in which women are marginalised, demoralised, uh, patronised. Really that matters in as much as those are the ways in which we are then denied opportunity, voice, power and influence. And then 
we look at the intersections of further oppression within that group. So there are certain factors we need to look at. And increasingly, and I wrote about this in the book, gender is not the only identity that impacts our our power, our influence, how fairly we we will be treated, um, how many doors will be opened to us, how quickly we will be criminalised. And feminism is not relevant or it's not doing its job unless it acknowledges that. So, uh, you know, in the book I write about the fact that if I go out into the street and I point at a black man and say to a police officer, that man stole my iPhone, what will happen is the police will immediately believe me. They'll go over to that man. Uh, they will be. They might be aggressive to that man. They might manhandle that man. They might arrest that man. If a black man points at me as a white woman and says she stole my iPhone, they will. They may do nothing and they may question it. They'll. They'll certainly be suspicious of him because they will look at me and they'll think she's not the kind of person that steals phones. And if they do come over, they will say, oh, could there have been any mistake? Is it possible you've picked up this man's iPhone? And then I could actually, had I stolen it, pull it out. Oh, I'm so sorry. I thought it was mine. Oh, I'm so silly. I'm so sorry. I didn't realize. I didn't realize. And I could do that. And the posher I made my voice, the more likely they'd believe me. If I started to cry, they'd feel sorry for me and probably comfort me. But it would be very difficult for me under those circumstances to get arrested. And a feminism that doesn't acknowledge that and then take within that how I might be able to use my, weaponize my tears against a black woman or how a black woman might organize a feminist meeting on the fourth floor with no lift, not thinking about feminists coming in in a wheelchair so it's a paradigm and and you have to stand in it and and look at where these gaps in power are acknowledge where your privileges are and do the best to close the gaps with the influence you have brilliant well I want to get into a little bit about your cultural world the woman behind the very famous podcast so can we start by talking a little bit about what books are currently on your bedside table please yes you can uh, so I'm rereading Rene Edo Lodger's why I'm no longer talking to white people about race and I'm also reading for the first time white fragility mm. And this is something that I think uh, a lot of people are doing at the moment. Uh, I've, I hadn't read white, white Fragility before. I don't know why, but I'd read why I'm no longer talking to white people about race when it came out and I wanted to reread it. Hmm. This is something I've been increasingly interested in since I started the podcast. If I'm honest, I started the podcast to wallow in my own oppression and what I've learned <laughs> about more than anything is my own privilege. And that was a, it was a pretty quick learning in the first year because you get emails right. and the first email you get you think all right well the podcast is free if you don't like it don't listen to it you you feel defensive and then the second email you think well who am i making this podcast for if people are not feeling their voice is being heard what's the point of making it am i only going to make it for people if it's only going to be for a very small circle of people that i might have hung out with at university or you know hung out with when I first started an improv company or whatever, if it's going to be for those six people, is it really worth having? Why don't I just invite those people around and we can all agree with each other in my living room or in a pub? 
yeah, you don't need the uh, the platform of the podcast to do that. <laughs> you actually don't. If you don't, you don't. If you're only saying things you already know, and you're only having guests on you already agree with, who and saying it to people know, who already know that will have point? that same feeling. Yeah, there's what's no point, the point, is there? And I have to say, I'm I'm very grateful people bothered to write in and 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 educate me really. And then, I mean, we've always paid for our guests. We've always paid our guests and we've always paid our co-hosts right from episode one when we had 30 people in the audience, 20 of whom I could recognise by name and 10, 10 of who were their mates. And so it grew very, very, very quickly. And I had to keep up. I had to keep up. And I remember once I made a joke and somebody wrote in and said, the way you're making that joke equating penises with men kind of makes me feel excluded as a trans woman and she said look penises are mainly on men but some penises are not on men some penises are on women and the way that I'd made the joke had not factored that in and so I wrote back and said she said I'm a huge fan of the show I love the show and uh this just made me feel a certain way so I wrote back and said oh okay if you hear anything else like that I don't want to make this your job, but if you ever want to write to me, I'd be really, I really want, I need to learn this stuff. So she DM'd me on Twitter and I said like, I'd love to hear more. So if anything, you know, doesn't strike you as right, could you tell me? Because I, I won't be saying it because I mean to, I'd be saying it because I don't know, but I'm learning this in public as I go. And so she wrote back and said, oh, I'd love to do that. And so her first message was a bit cross. And then after that, her messages were always, I know you'll want to know this. And then quite not long after that, I she's a neuroscientist. Her name's Rubes Walsh, and she actually is interviewed in the book. Um, I invited her on the show to talk because she's a, a brilliant woman and a neuroscientist and uh and uh who specializes in gender and um so then we became really good friends. She's been on the podcast. Um I mean I have a I have a lockdown WhatsApp group with her and some other friends and I interviewed her so uh, for the book so I feel like I've really built this show on criticism and it owes a lot to criticism and without it I mean I wouldn't have heard the expression white tears I wouldn't know what that meant but now I do know I'm aware of that and I can walk through the world in a much more constructive powerful empathetic compassionate way and I mean I'm white lady around as much as anybody to be honest with you I'm not saying I'm some kind of bastion of excellent behavior at all times but I have a much better working understanding than I did four and a half years ago what behaviors I can exhibit that will make the world a better place and not accidentally crash around as much and this sort of so what you're saying is that doing the podcast has been something of an education for you I didn't know any of this I started at feeling annoyed about how things clearly were for women but I pretty quickly learned that things were uh, that, that, that they're a bit like men can never really know unless they listen very carefully to the experience of women in comedy, what it's like to be a woman in comedy. So they could be a man in comedy. And they, before me too, men would argue so vociferously with me that it wasn't any different, it wasn't any harder. And I remember once having a conversation with some men in comedy 
And I, at that point, this was way before the podcast. This was 2011. In 2011, I started mentoring a young woman called Sadia Azmat, who wanted to be a comic. And I had come and done a diversity and inclusion event at her job. And so she'd contacted me afterwards and said, I want to be a comic. And, you know, I just, do, what do you do? Can you just turn up to a comedy club and say, I'd like to do some comedy? Like she didn't have an in. And so I was mentoring her and working on her material with her. And she was great. She had a really interesting voice and she was just a extremely hard worker and just absolutely brilliant. And trying to get her gigs was so difficult because she was a British Asian woman who wore a headscarf. And they didn't, in 2011, they just didn't look at her and see comedian. And so I remember the first gig I got her was at Funny Women. It was an Asian night. Then Shazia Mirza brilliantly said um, Sadia could open for her for some gigs. But a lot of the gigs I was getting her were brilliant and very, very welcome. But she needed to get on bills that were not specifically based on her identity, if you see what I mean, or, or predicated by her identity. And it was so difficult. And I was telling these two men in comedy how much more difficult it was. And and that was, I mean, that was an awareness of intersectionality in 2011. So I can't have learned everything in <laughs> post the podcast. <laughs> but I think it was just, it wasn't even, I wouldn't have probably known the word intersectional, but I'm just a human being who can see. It's harder for Sadia than it is for me. And it's harder for me than it is for a white bloke in comedy because comedy is such a male, a white male dominated space, certainly in 2011, almost exclusively. So I was talking to them about that and they absolutely wouldn't have it. They wouldn't have it, Lucy. They were absolutely determined. They, they were looking at me like I was insane. They were looking at each other like I was so deluded and a bit embarrassing. And I remember I'd, I'd had a glass of wine and, um, and I just... I think I was meant to do a gig and I got all my adrenaline up and then the gig didn't happen because it was an outdoor thing in Australia and it had rained. And then I had a glass of wine and so, and I just felt like my adrenaline was up and stuff. And I just started crying, explaining it to them and saying, no, it's harder. Cause one of them was saying, well, I'm a character comedian and it's just as hard for me to get gigs because people only want stand up in clubs. And I was like, yeah, but that is not the same. This is not Satya's character. This is, this is, this is not character she could take on and put off. You can choose to do stand up, And also when you walk into the club, you look like what they think a comedian should look like. And they just absolutely wouldn't have it. And I, I'm, I'm still angry about that conversation. And I think what's happened in the interim is that the, um, because of me too, and time's up, the emotional, the emotional power has shifted somewhat. I don't know that the actual power has shifted very much, to be honest with you, but the emotional power shifted. So those guys in conversations now, I don't know, I haven't really spoken to those particular guys, but when I when those conversations happen now, those guys tend to be on the back foot a bit and they're complaining about, oh, how difficult it is for white men now. And they they are they're on the back foot. They're not they're not the boss of that conversation anymore. I'm not the deluded one anymore. A quorum of people accept that it is harder to be a woman. And then within that, it's harder to be a brown woman. And within that, it's hard to be a Muslim woman who wears a headscarf, et cetera, et cetera. A quorum of people will accept that now. So I don't feel the need to prove that to them anymore. I just go, guys, that's, that's, that's known, that's accepted. And we just don't, those conversations don't happen anymore. Not, 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 the, not in the same way. And I wouldn't cry now because I'd just be like, mm. <laughs> been accepted you're the deluded one there not me 
But then yeah. I just, I was the only woman there. I was the only woman there. And I was the, they just, yeah. I was so on the back foot all the time. Of and course, so of course. I don't want to be that person. I wanted men to listen to me. And I, when I did the podcast, I didn't want to be that person to people who had experienced different intersections of oppression. So has the podcast changed your reading habits? I mean, I'm not saying that it suddenly made you um, a reader and you weren't before, but has it made you more aware about the kinds of things you're reading, the sort of you know, who the authors are, what their point of view is? Is it like you Are you consciously looking out for books, whether it's novels or nonfiction, that teach you something about the world that is not the world that you've lived in? Yes, I think that's, I think it has. I've just read Brown Baby by Nikesh Shukla. Mm. Um, now, one reason it's changed my reading habits is I get sent a lot of books now. Right, of course. Because people Everyone are, wants you to yeah, blurb like, their latest book, yeah. Or, or maybe consider having that person on the podcast as a guest or just maybe I'll be talking like this and I'll bring it up. Um, yeah. They don't always say, they don't always follow it up with, and now can you talk about it? But it's just if, I suppose I'm the kind of person that if I am then on the podcast, I might refer to a book. Um, mm. So I'm sure, now I'm a friend of Nikesh's and he is a brilliant man um, and a lovely man. But uh, I was sent this, I'm sure, from his publisher because I'm uh, I'm the kind of person that might might end up talking about it. And look, they were right. Here you are talking about it. So tell us, tell us about it. Uh, it's by Nikesh Shukla. Now, if you... If you know Nikesh Shukla's name and you're not sure where from, it could be because he is a prolific novelist and has written a lot of books for young adults as well. But he is best known, I think, for The Good Immigrant, which is a collection of essays from immigrants to Britain or who people who are in families where their parents are immigrants, black or brown or Far Eastern Asian families, talking about their experiences and the good immigrant refers to having to be a better citizen, having to work twice as hard, having to prove your humanity, having to prove yourself all the time and having never to be a trouble, troublesome person or a difficult person because you've got to be a good immigrant so that white people approve of you and go, oh, they're one of the good ones. And that's that's the reference to it. And then there's another anthology called The Good Immigrant USA, which is a, a similar American book, also edited by Nikesh Shukla and Shamin Suleiman. So the book Brown Baby, it's like a, a current memoir in as much as it's about Nikesh's life right now, but it reads like a memoir. Uh, it's about his feelings about he has two little girls. Uh, he himself is from a British Asian family and uh, his two little girls are mixed race. And it's about the death of his mother and his first daughter being born and him getting this illusion that the, his baby looks like his mother at some times and thinking, oh, she's here. She's back with me in the form of uh, this baby, uh, which, of course, is partly true because of genetics, that, that, that something of her is carried on. And sometimes she looks like her and sometimes she doesn't. It's a beautiful book because it is about... It's partly about feminism. It's partly about raising daughters and what you tell them. But it's partly about raising a brown baby and how you explain to that small, innocent person about the sort of racism they may see inflicted on you when they go out with you or they may experience 
when you're not there to protect them and when do you talk to them about that and how do you explain that to them and about uh as he's an author um he's acutely aware of representation in books and goes out of his way to find books with brown heroes and there's a stat in it about this tiny percentage it's something like three percent but it's the, a tiny, tiny percentage of books for children have brown heroes. Some of them have brown characters or black characters, but they don't have brown or black heroes. And what does that tell, especially a brown girl, how likely is the book to have a brown female hero? So what does that tell her about her place in the adventure, her place in life, her, her place on the journey? But also he makes the point more so, what does it tell all the white boys reading it? about a brown girl's place in the adventure. And they need the representation. It's not just so she can go, oh, I'm in the book. It's not about that. It's about how we all perceive each other's places in the adventure, in the journey, in in who's in a leadership role, who gets to say, this is where we're going next, who gets to say, I want to speak now. And when's this out? Is it later this year? I think it was meant to come out this year because, but because of lockdown, it's coming out early next year now. Okay, so it can be on everyone's reading list for then. I laughed a lot. I laughed. Oh, I loved it so much. I laughed a lot. Um, I thought a lot. It had a lot of those, what I call seeing a different view out of a familiar window. Because mm. is brilliant at that. He takes you over to a window, you know, and you understand. And he pulls the curtains back. And he says, when you're looking out of this window with me, you're going to see the view differently. And I think there's almost nothing more powerful than that. Mm. But also I sent him a picture of me finishing the book, uh, a picture I would not send many people, just to be clear. <laughs> it's not flattering because I was I was weeping. And it, wasn't in, it wasn't in good light. Uh, oh. So I hope he's deleted it. Well, um, but it can but hope. absolutely a beautiful book. I think... And I would recommend it for anybody. But if you've got babies, I don't have babies, but if you've got babies, I think you'll find it uh, compelling. Uh, Mm. If you've got brown babies, you will find it, uh, you know, intoxicating and and gripping. Uh, If you're somebody who in this period of history knows they need to understand more about race and uh, you are looking for, you know, I think sometimes we think, oh, we've got to read all of these books that say um, this is how you should think about things. And the more we consume story, and I've seen a lot of people through Black Lives Matter, black people saying also black people write about joy and black people write about fun and black people make movies that are silly and they're rom-coms and consume those things. Black people don't always write about race. And although this book is about race, it's also about death and life and friendship and it's 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 a parenthood and kind of families and love and it's a page turner and there's something universal about it as much as the fact that you know someone like myself as a white woman I might learn something by reading it I'm also going to enjoy it as a book exactly you will you will flip through it and there'll be so much relatable content in it so I would say uh almost whoever you are pick up brown baby it's very I read it very quickly and you will not regret it Okay, fantastic. And can you tell me about a recent article or a podcast that you've been thinking about in particular, something that's made you think? Yes, um, I listened to a podcast called Have You Heard George's Podcast? 
And it's specifically an episode about uh, his encounter with the police. Um, Quite famously, he was arrested after a gig and stripped, searched. This is George the poet we're talking Mm. about, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, he was. He was. He did a sold out gig in Islington, and then afterwards, the police just grabbed him and stripped, searched. It was clearly like a stop and search, and racially motivated. And he wrote this episode about the police and about the black community's relationship with the police. Uh, that's a piece of performance poetry with, if you have never listened to the podcast before, he cuts in audio and then does poetry around it so that you end up with this much deeper but more visceral understanding of it. The one thing about the 2020 and you know us being all behind closed doors suddenly and maybe that was the thing that allowed the pressure cooker to come to a, a point where capitalism had slowed to an extent that people could come out onto the streets in the most meaningful way that has happened, according to black commentators, since the 60s and maybe ever. That conversation is hopefully starting to happen now. And it, and and that conversation just being on the table in the same way that I was referring to Me Too, getting us past some of the worst excesses of the gaslighting and people looking at you like you're deluded. I really hope that we can get past that, you know, can't, you know, me and my white hopes, who cares? But that's, that feels like now a conversation that, that can at least begin to happen. And art can Art can awaken that. Story can awaken that. Nothing, there's, and this is the thing about George the Pope, when you listen to him, it's so keen what he's saying and it can open you up and make you understand in a way that ideas never quite can in the same way. It can make you feel mm-hmm. something. And it's like a lock. It's like a, the only way I can explain it, it's like a key that goes into your heart, into your soul or into your, almost like your stomach really. And it unlocks something. Well, it's similar to what you were saying about um, the, about Nikesh's book, right? That there's something about the story that can pull you in in a different way. You know, it, it's very important. We need these books that teach us what has happened in history. We need to read about becoming an anti-racist. But at the same time, we also need stories from these communities that will that people like you and I can read and, and learn from them in a different way and perhaps in a more visceral and um, emotional kind of understanding perhaps is what you're talking about and the great thing about uh, absolutely absolutely I just think art can do that story is the only thing that's ever changed the world a story Mm. and revolution but no revolution happens without story and that's you look at all revolutions you know have as have uh, are predicated on stories and usually there's a story that is the the story that breaks the camel's back and in this case it's George Floyd's story um yeah. And it's because it was caught on camera and because my friend who's an African-American woman who I'm very close to, and she was saying, she said, I think and the fact that he called for his mother is something that it, it, it awakened something in people that should have been awake a long, 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 long time before. But story is so powerful. Um, but I think the best books that are books of ideas that deal with this stuff are books like why I'm no longer talking to white people about race because Rennie tells her own story in that too. She talks about, Mm. oh, I was having this great conversation with a white woman and um, I was saying, you know, this about race and she was saying, yeah, that's how I feel about gender at times. And well, we're really agreeing and we're really getting on. And then Rennie tells a story in which she says, you know, and I, and I knew there was a, 
that was racist. I knew there was the reason for that was that was that person was racist. And and the white woman goes, oh, actually, someone accused me of being racist, and I really don't like that. And you can see that actually, as soon as the word racist came up, the doors came up. And because Rennie's telling that from her own experience, it creates a connection to the reader. It's not, it is a book of ideas and it is a, it is a, an analysis and it isn't there just to be an emotive text. It's there to be a factual text, but there is mm. emotion within that. And, uh, you know, my close black girlfriends always say, when you know, you know, sometimes someone is just being rude. Sometimes they're just, you know, the librarian's having a really bad day and you're the fifth person and she's actually been tetchy with the last four who were white. And sometimes it's race and you know the difference. And I've had a couple of black girlfriends say that. You just know, you know when it's race and you can't explain it and you you cannot explain to white people. And they go, well, maybe she was just having a bad day. She's like, but you know, but you know. And if, you know, I, I think why I'm no longer talking to white people about race is a really important book. If you have black friends who are in your life, but you're not close to them in a way where you're talking about the minutiae of their life every day, you know, like you're not like you see them once every six months, they're not going to turn up to that birthday party and go, by the way, this is an awful racist thing that happened to me this week. If you're not in the minutiae mm. of somebody's life, it's very difficult to, you're not oh, going to know the so details. difficult to understand the amount of microaggressions. And again, I'm a white woman. I will never know in the same way a man will never know the the hundreds of microaggressions and sexualizations and and patronizing the man can never know you can tell them all day they'll never know they'll never know but if they listen they'll start if they listen to a, a couple of close female friends they'll start to believe it and they'll start to see it more often when it occurs and they'll start to put their foot in the door and stop it yeah can I ask you then about, um, could you tell me about a, a film or a song or a TV series that you've really loved watching recently? Uh, yes. Um, so on this topic, 13th um, was absolutely remarkable. Um, everyone should watch it. Um, it's about the 13th Amendment um, uh, and about the abolition of slavery being uh, loopholed with, ah, well, you can get someone to work for you for free and indenture them if they're in prison. So everyone should watch that. It's on Netflix. Um, also, Mae Martin's show. Uh, Mae Martin uh, did a, has made an incredible scripted half-hour comedy drama um, called um, Feel Good. Yes, Feel, Good. Feel Good. Yeah. And in it, she plays uh, someone called Mae Martin, who's a comedian, so it's clearly uh, based on somebody very, very like Mae Martin, but of course it's. Right. <laughs> um, and she falls in love with a young woman who has never had a same sex relationship before up until this point identified as straight. And Mae is the first woman she's kissed. And it's about Mae's character's uh, gender identity. It's about their romantic connection. It's about Charlotte Ritchie's character. Charlotte Ritchie plays the love interest and it's about Charlotte Ritchie's awakening to her own queerness and to her own acceptance of that and what that might mean if you're in the world walking down the street holding hands with a girl or your friends know about it or your parents know about it. What does that mean for you? Because it, it now puts you into a marginalised category. You're the same person you were yesterday, but now... Maybe a lot of people hate you. Maybe there's a, some countries you can't travel to safely. Maybe, you know, there are all sorts of 
different things that happen when you wake up and uh, have that revelation that you're uh, you're not straight. I watched this earlier this year, and I thought I was really struck by the fact that it's um, it's incredibly moving in all the thing, all the kind of elements that you're talking about, and you get this real insight into this relationship that is blossoming in this. In this, it's really sweet and it's lovely seeing them sort of fall in love with each other, but yet battling their own demons all along the way. And I think the nuance is is perfectly pitched. It's so lovely and it's so charming and it's very relatable. What I like about it is that it's um, one of the many things I like about it is May's performance um, and how. I feel like same-sex relationships with women are often fetishized on television. It's yeah. two two women who both have femme gender expression kind of it's like a performative um or mm. it's not portrayed uh sexually and my friend Grace Petrie who is a brilliant protest singer-songwriter and Grace is a lesbian who has masculine gender expression and she says she's never seen up until that point, anybody with masculine gender expression as a sort of sex object on the telly, if you see what I mean. Sex objects probably uh, sounds pejorative, but interesting. Uh, you know, just sort of a yeah. pinup. Um yes. it's really yes. not it's really not a thing um to see. And she was saying growing up, you just never saw that. You never saw anybody yeah. who Grace said, I never saw anyone who looked like me who was the object of desire. Right. And I think and it's also just a really funny show. I mean, you're on top of all of these things. I, I found myself laughing out loud so many times while watching it. I'm oh, completely, completely addicted to completely. it. Completely. But it's sort of it's just like a sweet romantic story without Yeah. Sort of You're really rooting for them in a kind of you know, they're so they're so sort of messed up in their own little ways, and yet you really want want it to work between them. Or I did anyway. I found myself almost wanting to kind of get you know sit them down on a sofa and say let's just have a chat and oh, work it out completely completely it was so uh it's so charming it's so funny lisa kudrow plays may martin's mum which is sort of like a dream yeah she's propping up in a lot of tv shows these days isn't she and she's excellent in this she's doing a lovely line in mums now and uh and good on her uh she's so good in it she's so good in it um she plays this sort of distant mother who pops up on skype a lot and then turns up and is uh, is very emotionally distant and is, she's very funny very very funny our shells will be back in just a moment ryan reynolds here from Mint mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes and I'm talking to Deborah Francis White about May Martin's show Feel Good, which we're both huge fans of. I've also asked you to pick a photograph to talk to us about yes. today, uh, Deborah. And I wonder, can you explain to uh, listeners what the photograph is? So in end of 2012, beginning of 2013, I found my biological family. I'd never seen a picture of anyone related to me up until that point, biologically. Wow. And I was raised by my mum, my dad, with my sister and my brother, and I was 100%, you know, that part of that family. I was never made to feel different because I wasn't biologically connected to that to that family and didn't have any hang-ups about that that I knew of. But I got to a point where I thought it's kind of time you know, I, I would Google my birth mother's name. I found out my birth mother's name and I would Google it every year and it was an unusual name and there was never anything there. Wow. And then one time I Googled and up, someone had put on, someone, someone had logged the, the address that my birth mother was at at the time of my birth. And so I could see her parents' names and her siblings' names. And so suddenly I had more information and so what and so then I was able to kind of track them down and I, and as I did it I did a show about it because there was a storytelling festival that we were actually hosting and I was meant to be doing an old show and I was like no I have to talk about this I'm living a story and tracking Brilliant. down your biological family there is nothing more exciting than doing that on Facebook and Pinterest and you know all of the, the things that I was using I, was going, oh, I think this is her and I think this is she's a connection I think that's my sister like it was absolutely remarkable um Two things I was looking... Were you nervous, though, about doing it live? Sorry to interrupt, but was there any sense of what if you found out something you weren't comfortable sharing with people? Or were you already too far along by that point? I was doing it as a series of live shows. So if I didn't want to say something, there were times I did hold things back because that was it was too much at the time. Um, But, yeah, it was a way of processing it. I think some of my friends were worried that I was telling the story too soon, but it was honestly, it was a way of... Mm. making sense of it and okay I think I put all my angst into it as well if something sad appeared I'd think oh well the show needs pathos you know it was just a way of yeah <laughs> this is a great yes. twist for us to it's pursue really yeah. it needs drama so um but the two things I was looking for that I didn't immediately find is I had I was born and raised in Australia always wanted to live in London as soon as I read books about London I was like that's where I live this city this huge ancient city full of culture and hubbub and you know absolutely always wanted to live in London and I was a performer from when I was really small first time I got on stage I remember it well um I did not get off the stage I had to be led off the stage (laughs) and I didn't instantly find those things with my biological family but then um when I'm at my grandfather he told me that um his mother Hetty who is featured in this photo um 
she was in music hall. So this is my great grandmother. And she was, she was in music hall before the first world war. And she had a double act with her sister, a comedy vaudeville double act with my sis, with her sister, Lucy. So Hetty and Lucy, um, did this double act. And uh, then when they went solo, Hetty became a dancer and uh, Lucy became a comedian, solo comedian. And I could see on, I can find on the bills uh, in the, it, it, all over the country and in the census every four years, she's always in different digs because she's traveling around the country with other show How people. Amazing. She always says she's 23, whatever year it is, because she's with other show business people. Every year she's 23. Um, <laughs> She wasn't even 23 <laughs> the first time she said it. It's hilarious. Um, show business does not change for women, just to be very clear. Anyway, Lucy and Hetty um, uh, went their own ways. And uh, Hetty married what they called a stage door Johnny, uh, which meant that the the gentleman callers would come to the stage door and see if they could pick up a dancer and take her out for the night. And uh, and he hit lucky. <laughs> Great grandfather Charles was a sort of posh div- Devon naval officer and he uh turned up at the door and got more than he bargained for they ended up having some children and one of them had asthma and Mm. so they were told there was no ventolin then and so they were told go to a hot climate so they all got on a ship and went to Australia and that's that's why grandfather Charles was born in Australia now their eldest Eulalia who is pictured as a babe in arms uh, with Hetty here and I love this picture because it's an old black and white but normally everyone looks very serious and they're looking at the camera whereas Hetty is smiling at her baby in this picture it's quite an unusual picture uh, for the era yeah it seems very modern doesn't it's it so um, modern. it's not like the usual but it's sepia and tableau you no, might it's see sepia and they're wearing you know uh, Edwardian clothes um, it's, it's beautiful really lovely. and so Hetty in this picture has had her first Eulalia um, then she continues on with her show business career and her husband's in the Navy. And then when they have to go to Australia, Eulalia is already 10 by this age. And they get to Australia. And Grandfather Charles said to me, I do not know why, because they got off, the boat stopped in Melbourne and Sydney, both great places. For some reason, they then got on a 17-hour train ride and went to Queensland. And he said, I don't know why. There's, where they went to was so rural. He said, there's nothing there now. God knows what it must have been like then. And they set up a dairy farm. And he said, you know, a naval officer and a showgirl. That dairy farm was bound to fail. And it did. And they lost all the money that they had. Um, but Eulalia, who was 10. And I wouldn't believe this if I didn't have her on record. But I was recording this show all through. Um, so I recorded the live show. And I kept having this obsession that I had a sister in Shoreditch. And uh, what came out... and. I, which I, I didn't have a sister in shortage, but this was this obsession as I was cataloging the show. Cause every time I did the show, I found out more and more and more. And eventually I went to New Zealand where my birth mother was to meet them. And I said to the audience, this is the last time I'm ever going to say, I've never met anyone related to me before biologically. And I came back, the same audience was there waiting to hear what had happened. You know, it was just all live shows in a fringe theater. So I was obsessed that I had the sister in shortage. What I found out was that Eulalia up until she was 10, had lived with her mother and father in Shoreditch. So she is my great aunt. Wow, what a coincidence. She's my grandfather's older sister. She's the firstborn. And she, when she was taken to this dairy farm in Queensland in Australia, she missed London so much that she took her doll and decided there were some train tracks nearby that a train went through probably once a week. 
And she missed London so much. She thought, if I walk down those train tracks, there must be somewhere like London, or maybe I'll be able to get back to London. I'll be able to walk back. So she got her doll and walked down the tracks for an hour and a half and just deeper into the bush. And she realized she was going to die, which you absolutely would. You would just die of thirst. So she turned around and came back and she said no one had missed her. When she was 10, she had tried to walk back to Shoreditch. And uh, so um, she then, great aunt Eulalia, moved to the town where I lived. So I was living near great aunt Eulalia when she died and never met her, of course, because I was a child. Um, And I often think, it's like I tried to walk back to London on behalf of Eulalia. And they were all show business. They were all show business people. Um, of that generation. Uh, Eulalia herself had a ballet school and, you know, somewhere in rural Queensland after the depression and, you know, set up a ballet school and used to do concerts and all sorts of things. It's an astonishing story to find all these connections between yourself and these long distance family members that you had no idea about. And the thing is, it's confirmation bias. If I were a long distance runner, I would look for people in my biological family who were long distance runners and I would go, oh my God, this person ran down, or I'd say she ran down the train tracks looking for, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd find something else. If I was a doll maker, I'd say, and she got her doll and she walked and she took her doll. That's what, what was important to her. So, but but we all tell ourselves stories that make sense of our lives, right? And so this is important. That's what you've done here. And, you know, it's very important. Stories, everything. Um, and, yeah. uh, but yes, uh, I first I thought, what are the chances of having a an aunt, a great aunt, who is a, a solo comedian, who's a woman? What are the chances? But then I looked at all the bills, the musical vaudeville bills. Guess what? Quite high. At least half the bill, <laughs> half the bill were women because women were funny before the First World War. And it was not, there was oh. no stereotype that women weren't funny. And in fact, if you went to a vaudeville night and there were no women on, everyone would complain. Well, people wouldn't go. People wouldn't go. Um, so what happened in the First World War then? What was it that changed? This is my theory and I want to do a documentary about it. So if anyone's listening and wants to commission me to do a comedy dog, this is what I want to do. I think... Okay. When vaudeville and music hall died and television sprang up, the the pipeline to television was either Footlights or similar, which is was a posh white male yeah. hold. If you're a guy, um, uh, you could get through that way if you're a guy and you're posh or working men's clubs. So all that 1970s, right. you know, 1950s and 60s as well. Take my mother-in-law, please. Um, that. That was not a space women were even allowed in unaccompanied um, only on yep. certain nights, much less to perform. So the so your pipeline, your your training ground went away. Yeah. There was no the way yeah. in was when cut you off. start in music hall, mm. you start with one little act, or you get hired to do one little sketch, then you tour that around and you develop your own material, or you know you 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 build your gigs, you build your base. But someone will take a risk on you in a sketch where you do three lines. And that's that's your pipeline through. Yeah. So uh, there's Gosh, no yeah there's no pipeline. So I want to do something about when women became not funny, and 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 where that prejudice came from, and why it was just accepted as completely normal that women were funny uh, before the Second World War, but even into the twenties, and uh, women were still funny. Women did not really stop being funny. Uh, until after the there's a lot of music hall as well in the second world war 
Um, and it's mm. funny, so- bawdy songs and funny things. It's really television that killed women being funny. And the pipeline for television. Damn, okay. So, I mean, obviously wow. we're not in that period now. There's, you know, some of the great no. comedians in the world and the greatest scripted comedy shows in the world are done by women now. We're sort of out the other side of a, a lot of that. I mean, in terms of platforming. The pipeline is still troublesome in this country in terms of panel shows, and uh, but it's not as bad as it was by any means. Let's leave TV alone for now and move on to novels. I want to ask you about a novel that you recommend to your friends always. Um, okay, so there's two. Uh, one is Donna Tartt's The Secret History. And honestly, mostly it's... It's that it's really about, so I was a Jehovah's Witness when I was younger and I I wasn't when I was a kid. I came into it as a teenager and my family became Jehovah's Witnesses and going into a high control group is something that it's very difficult to understand why you would do it or how it could happen to you. But high control groups are everywhere and uh, it's it's easy to kind of form them even within society um, where the rules are, unless you agree with everything we say, you know, you, you're shunned. The reason I say the Jehovah's Witnesses are a culture or a high control group is because you can't have friends outside and the punishment for leaving or being accused of something is shunning. Um, and this is a book about mm-hmm. a high control group, but in a sort of rather elegant setting of um, a New England university. Yeah, it's a lot sort of uh, sexier, isn't it? <laughs> yes, and it's a little group of people who are who see themselves as elite because they've been accepted onto this classicist course and he only takes five people and he treats them differently and they only take his classes. And this is at the university where they're all students, isn't it? And it starts with, this is not a spoiler. It starts with, uh, we, uh, someone was murdered. It's partly my fault. Basically we murdered somebody. And then it goes into going into this, into this university. So it's a, it's about being in a high control group and how you can, you can almost end up doing anything if you're in a high control group because the group polices itself. And also the prose is just so glorious. Okay, so I'm going to read you a bit of the prose. This is the opening. To such a thing as the fatal flaw, that showy dark crack running down the middle of a life exists outside literature. I used to think it didn't. Now I think it does. And I think that mine is this a morbid longing for the picturesque at all costs. And it's just, she's just such a glorious wordsmith, Donna Tart. And it's mm. it's just like you could lick the pages. Yeah, it's a really sumptuous novel. You can fall into it and, and wallow there, can't and you? And all of her books like that. It's just like eating ice cream. It's like, num, 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 num. <laughs> and what's the second book you wanted to recommend? Uh, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison and it is the most glorious book the characters are so there are so many characters and they're so richly woven and again if you're interested in understanding more about the African-American experience um, during Black Lives Matter it is a wonder to behold Toni Morrison she is just and again, if you're just interested in good literature, you know, it's just the word, the word smithery of it is absolutely incredible. Uh, the characters are glorious. There's an amazing quote here from Song of Solomon. 
if you surrendered to the air, you could ride it. Uh, I just think that she's just, she's a total poet. Um, she was the third beer, not the first one, which the throat receives with almost tearful gratitude, nor the second that confirms and extend the pleasure of the first, but the third, the one you drink because it's there, because it can't hurt, and because what difference does it make? And she's she's talking about a woman that way that, you know, she's treated like the third beer, like, ah, might as well, I'm not desperate. I feel like as a woman, we've all felt like the third beer at some point. What an, what an incredible talent that woman is. When did you first read Song of Solomon? Uh, years ago. I read it actually because I was doing uh, Radio 4 Goodreads and it was one of the books we had to read and I fell in love with it and then read, read more Toni Morrison after that. Is it the first one of hers you've yes. read? and I do think she is one of the greatest novelists in the world. I just don't think anyone can hold a candle to Toni Morrison and it's mm. it, her... her ability in her storytelling I'm very sad I didn't get to meet her before she died but I mean I, I wasn't a valuable meet to her time to be honest in another way I'm glad I didn't waste her time um <laughs> she, she had stuff going on she had stuff going on um uh, can you can you tell me about a book that has a or a or books it could be more than one that has made you think about feminism in a in a new way I feel like this is quite possibly a sort of trick question for you because I think our conversation earlier, obviously a lot of what you're doing on the on the podcast has uh, made you think about feminism differently over the years, but there presumably were some books along the way that sort of awoke your mind to certain things at various points. Yes. If you want a really accessible book, Sex, Power, Money uh, by Sarah Pascoe is fantastic. And within it, she talks about her own learning there's one story that she tells where somebody mistakes her for a sex worker on the street. And at first she's really upset about that. And then she starts to question her own feelings about sex workers and why she, why she would see that as uh, somehow pejorative. And that's been a big learning for me in the last couple of years that um, I, I've, I've started rewatching Scrubs and you may think, well, this isn't the kind of erudite stuff we've come to you for, Deborah Francis White. Well, um, Zach Braff and Donald Faison started doing a Scrubs rewatch podcast. And because it started in 2001, just before 9 11, um, they, uh, they are looking back on it as a sort of simpler time. Um, I mean, for them, they were young and, you know, it was a simpler time for me and uh, and a more you know, hopeful, optimistic, youthful time. And so that show, I suppose, I equate with that time. And I and it also it was a it was in many ways a progressive show for its time. And uh, the cast was very diverse. If you think it's you know, if you think Friends were still on the air when that started and the four leads, the four young leads um, were a Caucasian man, a, a Jewish man, a Caucasian woman, a black man and a Hispanic woman. And they all got a lot of their own story time. They were, mm. none, no one was the sidekick. Everybody got that heart, those heartfelt stories about, you know, how they felt about being young doctors and failing at medicine and succeeding at medicine and romance and parenthood and all of those things. Um, and 
but I was I've been rewatching it because of the podcast, and the one thing that really stands out is how many jokes, like disparaging jokes, there are about trans people and sex workers. Like really disparaging. Like that's the ultimate. Well, that can you know that person could be the butt of that joke, and you know, and that's something that I think still it's still there. Sex workers are so often the butt of the jokes and, you know, getting to know some sex workers through the podcast and getting to un- having an understanding of sex workers who um, everything from want to do this job to this is this job is the best option for me physically and I'm good at it to I actually love my job. I have completely changed my view of sex workers. And I think the great thing about Sarah's book is she uh, is that there's a lot of accessible evolutionary science in it and there's a lot of self-learning like for example that story that makes it a really quick speed read and she's quite good at acknowledging what she doesn't know and she's changed a lot Sarah since I've met her and her views and I think that's something we should all be aspiring to do. Fantastic that's a great recommendation if people haven't read it and then finally Deborah the last question I have for you today is could you tell me about a woman or even a couple of women that you admire? Well, at the moment, Jacinda Ardern is knocking it out of the park, isn't she? Right. Well, I mean, we're all huge fans of her at the moment, yes. She, and will be forever, I think, if it continues. <laughs> she put her country into lockdown immediately. And then yeah. they've had uh, 22 deaths from COVID. Still, each one a tragedy and a great loss to that family. But compared to our over 40,000, yes, our country is a lot more densely populated. But the disparity in those figures is extraordinary yeah, it's astonishing i think yeah. if we'd had the same amount of deaths per capita we'd have had something like 600 deaths and you know and this report came out saying if we'd locked down a week earlier we would have uh 20, fewer people would have died etc and so forth and it's just like uh you know but also she's so compassionate uh in her leadership she's a human being there was this lovely question around um at a press conference about lockdown and she said she said that the Easter Bunny and uh, yeah. the Tooth Fairy were to be considered key workers because she expects children to be watching her. And she thinks yes. that they're citizens of her country. And just because they can't vote doesn't mean they're not to be counted. And then she said, but they've got families too. So if they can't get to you, because of course she's taking into account that some families can't get out to get Easter eggs. Some families may not celebrate Easter. Some families yeah. may not have the money because they've been furloughed or whatever. Then just take it as read that they're trying their best, but they may not get to you to lower expectations, but say they're key workers. So if you wake up, don't think, oh my goodness, they shouldn't have been in my house. And I was like, she oh struck my God. the perfect tone, didn't she, with that? It was such a wonderful, inclusive way of being a leader, right? And speaking to the children as much as the adults. We need to start electing more Jacinda Ardern's. We really, really do. I mean, that's, yeah, as far as we're concerned, she should be the one in charge of everything. So. And the other person I. I mean, there's so many that I admire. I mean, every single teenager who booked up tickets for Donald Trump's rally and then didn't show in a in a protest that they did not want this racist man to be running their country. I mean, mm. they they call them like K-pop. They 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 refer to them as K-pop, yeah, the K-pop stands. K-pop yeah. stands, and it's like and 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 TikTok kids, you know. And you're like, come on, these kids that they absolutely get it. And I I just um. Uh, shared a it's like a little TikTok video or something about um, someone throwing rubbish out of their car, littering, and a teenager throwing it back into the car, and then the 
the person, the teenager walks on, the person opens the door to chuck it out the door and two other teenagers shut the door and go, no, don't, don't litter. And they walk on and I saw other people going, oh, it's staged. And I said, in that case, these Gen Zs have bothered to stage that. Yeah, it doesn't matter, does it, one way or the and other? It, and it looks incredible. So what? So they're brilliant filmmakers. They've made their point. They've, they've, what, they've shot it like a film. I mean, that's even yeah. more impressive than it just happened and someone filmed it. So I just, yeah, to all, basically all the, all the Gen Zs who are fighting the good fight and, um, and Michelle Obama, I have enormous, enormous respect for. And uh, I saw her speak last year. And one of the things that stayed with me that's about, I think, the kind of self-awareness everybody needs as they move through the world and increasingly we need as the world changes, as she said, that when they first got to the White House, they'd come out of a sort of absolutely ordinary Chicago neighborhood with barbecues and sleepovers and stuff. And they went to the White House. and They were like, oh, my God, this is so weird. And had all the staff. And and they said all the world, she said all the world leaders we met were really eccentric. They had all these weird things about them. And uh, they were all had these entourages around them. And they were just, they were all eccentric. They were all odd. And she said, after eight years in the White House, and then security and staff and everything beyond that. She said, I assume we are weird now. She said, I don't know how, because that's the point. You don't know your own eccentricities. She said, but I must be, because there's no way that I've gone through all that and I'm not the, I'm not weird now. She said, of course I am. I just don't know how. And I was like, that's the self-awareness we all need. <laughs> I don't know how I'm weird or I don't know how I'm uh, insensitive to somebody else's uh, oppression or somebody else's uh, somebody else's life experience. We all need to say, I don't know. I'm not sure if I knew I wouldn't be doing it. So f please, the, the thing that, uh, that I was reading in White Fragility, which I thought was amazing, was um, was that if somebody feels they can tell you, it's a, it's what she says is it's a, um, it's a real risk for a black or a brown person or a Far Eastern person to tell you if they think you've been racist. So they must trust you. So it's an it's it's a display of trust to tell you so open yourself up to it and accept it in that spirit um and don't expect them to put it in a certain way so that you feel comfortable and uh i think that acknowledgement that we are all going to screw up if things are outside our life experience and to take on board how we are either lacking ignorant in knowledge, you know, ignorant in experience or weird, eccentric, because we've been in whatever bubble we're in. I don't know how I'm weird, but feel free to tell me. I think is a wonderful way to operate in the world. And I have masses of time for Michelle Obama. I'll just, I'll do a final I'm a feminist but on Michelle Obama, which is one, this is true. I'm a feminist, but recently I actually said in conversation, the main reason I don't sleep with Barack Obama is out of respect for Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> the main reason. Main reason is I've never met him. I'm never going to meet him. And if I did, he'd be faithful to Michelle. That would be put me off actually. If he came on to me, I'd be like, "Oh, you're not who I thought you were." Yeah, you uh, would. You wouldn't yeah. be interested but anymore. I did right? say that. Uh, uh, a few cocktails in. That's the main reason. That's the main reason. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sure. Sure. Uh, I think that's a perfect place to end this. So thank you so much for joining us today, Deborah. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Shelf is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Deborah Francis White, the original guilty feminist. Uh, Lucy, thank you so much for having me. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture. 
Thank you for listening. Our Shelves is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Deborah Francis-White. Tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.